Enfield are two things I never thought I would see in the same headline. The headline read, TUV member believes more people would want to watch Linfield match over Joe Biden. The TUV's Ron McDowell was probably correct and I would consider myself to be one of the people who cares much more at this moment in time for Linfield's dramatic chase for the Irish League title than for anything Joe Biden may or may not say while he's in Belfast. It means that Linfield's scheduled home game at Windsor Park versus their bitter rivals Glen Torn has had to be postponed by 24 hours at the request of the PSNI and causing a headache for the thousands of fans who have bought tickets and made arrangements. The obvious compromise would have been for him to attend the match, but who would he support? In second thoughts, he might have found choosing between Linfield and Glen Torn a tougher balancing act than the Good Friday Agreement which he intends to commemorate while in Belfast. I jest, of course. The 46th President of the United States will begin a five-day visit to the island in Belfast next Tuesday. The visit is intended to coincide with the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, of which Biden has been a vocal supporter in the past. It's clear that the Biden visit has been designed to make an important contribution to our current stalemate, one that will have a positive impact on our future. But for the benefit of this podcast, I think it's a great opportunity for us to look back at the past, and in particular, previous visits to Belfast by US presidents. There haven't been many, and you might be hard-pushed to name them all, but each have been important in their own way, some more than others, and generally, they have all been dominated by one issue, peace for Northern Ireland. It wasn't until 1995 and Bill Clinton's iconic visit that a serving US president had set foot in Northern Ireland, let alone Belfast. Prior to that, there had only been examples of US presidents visiting outside of their term in office. Woodrow Wilson, for example, the 28th President of the United States from 1913, is said to have visited Belfast in 1889. Wilson's grandparents were from County Tyrone, and the small cottage where they lived is now something of a tourist attraction just outside Strabane. Historian Billy Candy tells us that Wilson visited Ireland in 1899 and that Belfast was on the itinerary. We know this because of a letter located amongst his personal papers written on the 20th of August from the White Horse Inn in Drogheda, County Louth. The visit wouldn't have made any headlines or caused any excitement except perhaps in academic circles because at the time Wilson was a professor of jurisprudence and political economy at Princeton University. Academia also had the pleasure of hosting another US president in Belfast, eight years before he would go on to serve two terms in office. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the man who directed the D-Day landings in 1944, came to Belfast a year later in August 1945 where he was given the freedom of the city and an honorary doctorate in law from Queen's University. Eisenhower, or Ike as he was known, touched down at Bishop's Court Airfield in County Down on the 23rd of August 1945 in what turned out to be his fifth visit here. The next morning he made his way from White Abbey to Queen's University where a military guard of honour awaited him for the first engagement of the day. Here, in the University's Great Hall, Eisenhower was presented with an honorary doctorate in law by the Marcus of Londonderry. It is my privilege as Chancellor of Queen's University, said the Marcus, and as representing this distinguished company to confer in your name the degree of Doctor of Laws Honoris Causa on General Eisenhower, Supreme Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Armies in Europe. Eisenhower was invited to address the audience in the packed hall, and he did so with a lengthy speech that was rooted in the context of the recently concluded war. 
He finished by saying, May I assure you again that I am proud you have today associated my name with this great university. To which great applause greeted the closing of his address. A garden party with 3,000 guests at Parliament buildings followed. However, it was at Belfast City Hall where the day's main event took place. Crowds of onlookers had gathered from early in the day at Donegal Square and at the mouth of Donegal Place, hoping to catch a glimpse of our American guest. Huge cheers greeted Eisenhower's arrival, while a military band played a rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. Inside the council chamber and with the public galleries filled to overflowing, the town clerk of Belfast, John Dunlop, read aloud the council's resolution, electing and admitting General Eisenhower as an honorary burgess of the city. The impressive ceremony concluded when Eisenhower was invited to respond to a speech by the Lord Mayor Sir Crawford McCullough, in which he began by saying, In inviting me to return here to become an honorary burgess, you have given one further proof of the ties of affection which bind the American army to the people of Northern Ireland. I trust that you look upon it as I do, as a token of our common purpose to work together for a better world. The Lord Mayor told Eisenhower that he hoped he would be able to return to Belfast again, though what McCullough wasn't to know was that two terms of office in the White House lay ahead for the General. Nevertheless, Eisenhower did manage a very brief four-hour return to Belfast on his way back from a European holiday in August 1962. On this occasion, he showed his wife Mamie where he signed the book at Belfast City Hall on the day that he was granted the freedom of the city. However, it would be over 30 years before Belfast would have the opportunity to witness a formal visit of a serving US president for the very first time. When President Clinton entered the White House in 1993, the conflict in Northern Ireland had reached somewhere close to a tipping point as IRA bombs continued to rip through places like Warrington and the Shankill Road while loyalist paramilitaries continued to target the nationalist community on a vast scale. Parallel to the ongoing violence were Sinn Féin's calls for what Gerry Adams described as inclusive dialogue. The IRA were reaching out to Britain and America for assistance in bringing the conflict to an end. This provided an opportunity for the Clinton administration to show its intent to help resolve the situation in Northern Ireland, something which had not been done in any meaningful way by US presidents before or since. Clinton's proposal to establish a peace envoy for Northern Ireland, despite being ultimately rebuffed by the UK Prime Minister John Major, was evidence of that intent. A year later, in January 1984, Clinton, somewhat controversially at the time, granted a US visa to Gerry Adams. It was a huge decision, made contrary to much of the advice he was receiving at the time, but it was another indication that the Clinton administration was serious on the issue of Northern Ireland. Clinton said of it at the time, the US cannot miss this rare opportunity for our country to participate in the peace process, and miss it they didn't because it was a decision that went some way to bringing about the first IRA ceasefire. By 1995 then, the peace process had gathered something which resembled momentum, though it wasn't without its stumbling blocks. Progress had stalled over the issue of all-party talks and IRA decommissioning, prompting threats of a return to violence, and an article by Gerry Adams in which he described the peace process as being in very serious difficulty. President Clinton's visit was scheduled for the 30th of November 1995, in the midst of this complex situation, and Adams was, quote, not optimistic that even this will be enough to provide the momentum which is necessary to get all party talks. The week leading up to the visit was a difficult one. 
On Saturday the 25th of November, the Times newspaper carried a report that the IRA had warned its members to prepare for a return to war if the deadlock in the peace process was not resolved. Two days later, on Monday the 27th of November, 46-year-old Norman Harley, a Catholic civilian, was beaten to death with an iron bar in a sectarian attack at the waterworks off the Cave Hill Road in Belfast. On Tuesday the 28th of November, the British and Irish governments issued their joint communique which stated that the two governments have agreed to launch a twin-track process to make progress in parallel on the decommissioning issue and on all-party negotiations. The governments also hope to have all-party negotiations begin by the end of February 1996 and they invited the parties to attend intensive preparatory talks. It was in this context and after months of speculation that the President, along with the First Lady Hillary Clinton, touched down at Belfast International Airport on Air Force One. meaningful steps by a US president on Northern Irish soil were on Belfast's Shankill Road, a working class unionist and loyalist area which had suffered so much during the conflict. Just two years previously, an IRA bomb destroyed Frizzell's fish shop on the Shankill, killing 10 people, including one of the bombers, and injuring a further 57. Surrounded by a rather edgy looking and vigilant security detail, President Clinton was determined to meet the people of the Shankill, who had gathered in large numbers to greet him. From the Shankill, he made the short trip then to Mackey's factory for the first formal engagement of the day. Here at Mackey's, the iconic and enduring image is of eight-year-old Catherine Hamill, who read a short but powerful speech to welcome the president to the stage. My first daddy died in the troubles, said Catherine. It was the saddest day of my life. Afterwards, Clinton made his first speech of the day in front of schoolchildren and factory workers. Spontaneous applause broke out on the factory floor when Clinton advised that those who renounce violence and put their necks on the line for peace should be welcomed to the negotiating table. By 12 noon, the presidential cavalcade was making its way down the Springfield Road to the sound of well-wishers in their thousands, and a brief stop-off permitted a walkabout on the falls just as it had occurred on the Shankill. After an engagement at the East Belfast Enterprise Park on the Albert Bridge Road, the President took a helicopter to Londonderry where he took the opportunity to heap praise on the SDLP leader John Hume at Guildhall Square. Back in Belfast, the City Hall was prepared for the main engagement of the day, the switching on of the Christmas lights, all 1,000 of them. The tree, thankfully, was a good bit bigger than the one we have today. This one had been specially flown in from Nashville, Tennessee, Belfast's twin city. The scenes in Belfast that evening are scarcely believable, looking back at them now. An estimated 80,000 people thronged Donegal Square North and Donegal Place, as far back as Castle Junction and Royal Avenue. I seem to remember the coverage being on in my house off the Woodstock Road, caveated by the fact that I was only 8 years old at the time, and maybe it was the news coverage I'm remembering, but I do think it was on TV. I also seem to remember hearing the story of an ex-combatant about how he attended a a weapons training session with his paramilitary group on the very same night. They trained with the windows open so that they could hear the jovial crowds at Belfast City Hall. This was a stark reminder that 
the fledgling peace process was fragile and capable of shattering at any moment. Nevertheless, it does seem odd to me to be talking on a history podcast about something that happened in my lifetime, but this was truly an historic occasion for Belfast. Curtis Staggers warmed up the crowd in advance of Van Morrison and Brian Kennedy, who provided a memorable rendition of Van the Man's hit, Days Like This. It was then the turn of President Clinton to switch on the Christmas lights. As I look down these beautiful streets, I think how wonderful it will be for people to do their holiday shopping without worry of searches or bombs, to visit loved ones on the other side of the border without the burden of checkpoints or roadblocks, to enjoy these magnificent Christmas lights without any fear of violence. Peace has brought real change to your lives. Recalling the event in 2018, Clinton said, We were still in the beginning of this whole process in 1985, when I was invited here to flip on the Christmas tree. I was terrified that the lights would short out, and the whole thing would be a metaphor for failure. But in front of tens of thousands of people who wanted a different tomorrow, the lights came on. The scene of Clinton standing on that platform in front of the Christmas tree is now an iconic image in Irish history. Irish-American journalist Nilo Dowd wrote, I vividly remember that moment, one of the highlights of my life. Irish America had finally found its voice and there was nothing sure in my mind but that peace would follow. Ireland, said O'Dowd, would never be the same again. And he was right. The Good Friday Agreement was to follow in April 1998 before Clinton made a second visit to Belfast as president in September 1998 and then a third in December 2000. The visit in 2000 was treated as something of a farewell trip to Northern Ireland ahead of his exit from office the following month. The millennium year had been a difficult one for the peace process, with the Stormont Assembly collapsing after just 72 days before being reinstated at the end of May. Disorder at Drumcree lingered on in July before an internal loyalist feud caused mayhem in Belfast during the second half of the year. The sectarian killings hadn't stopped either. In the week before Clinton's visit, Trevor Kell, a 35-year-old Protestant, was shot dead off the Crumlin Road, and Gary Moore, a 30-year-old Catholic, was shot dead in Newton Abbey. And so having travelled five years down the road of a peace process, the situation appeared to be as precarious as it was for Clinton's first visit in 1985. The process this time had stalled over Unionist demands for IRA disarmament, Republican calls for quicker demilitarisation and general uncertainty over plans for future policing arrangements. It was hoped that by including President Clinton in talks at Stormont, even for a short time, that it could give the process a jump start that it badly needed. Tony Blair's spokesperson explained that we've got Clinton here and given his reputation on the issue, given his energy, given his commitment, he could be helpful in turning this around. Before meeting the parties individually, except for the DUP, a Sinn Féin spokesperson said, I would not be hopeful of any progress. The British have not honoured their commitments and it's difficult to see how we can get anywhere today. Meanwhile, David Trimble, leader of the Ulster Unionists, came out of the talks warning that the peace process could be finished within a month if the IRA didn't show some indication that it was willing to decommission its weaponry. The situation appeared to be bleak. Though 10 Downing Street did make a valiant attempt to put a positive spin on things, a spokesperson for the Prime Minister said after the talks that there is a feeling that there is a possibility of moving forward on some of the issues 
I would not put it any stronger than that, end of quote. Before leaving Belfast then for the last time as president, Bill Clinton addressed an audience of 8,000 people at an event in the newly constructed Odyssey Arena. The packed arena was entertained by music from Brian Kennedy and from community choirs, and the Irish News proclaimed that the new Northern Ireland had finally arrived. When Bill Clinton finally arrived, however, he took to the Odyssey stage with Tony Blair, Seamus Mallon, and David Trimble before making another lengthy and considered speech which he hoped, despite the dreary mood music surrounding the talks, would resonate with political leaders and with civic society alike. Following in the footsteps of his predecessor, President George W. Bush visited Northern Ireland three years later, in April 2003, to hold talks on the peace process which had stumbled yet again, and also to discuss the Iraq war. The IRA leadership was still at this time under intense pressure to disband and decommission its weapons, and the Stormont Assembly had collapsed yet again in October of the previous year following allegations of a Republican spy ring in the Northern Ireland office. Again, it was hoped that a US presidential intervention could provide the impetus needed to find a resolution. On this occasion, the summit was held at Hillsborough Castle, just outside Belfast, and with it only being a short visit, Bush never actually visited the city. On his next visit, though, Bush did make it to Belfast during a one-day trip in June 2008. Like Clinton in 2000, this was something of a farewell trip in advance of his presidency coming to an end. This time, Stormont Castle, rather than Hillsborough Castle, was the venue where he was welcomed by First and Deputy First Ministers Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness of the DUP and Sinn Féin, and also in attendance were the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown and the Irish Taoiseach Brian Cowan. This time, the main item on the agenda was the devolution of policing and justice powers to Northern Ireland before making the short journey to Lockview Integrated Primary School on the outskirts of East Belfast, where he even had some time to join in with a game of basketball. The visit of President Bush to Belfast was not without its controversy, though. While visiting a community project in the city centre, a crowd of several hundred protesters had gathered at Belfast City Hall to oppose his visit. Some of them even managed to climb onto the roof of the city hall to erect an Iraqi flag. Flags, protests and Belfast City Hall formed the unsettled backdrop for the last visit of a serving US president to Belfast. While here for the G8 summit in 2013, Barack Obama found time to include Belfast in his itinerary where he spoke to an audience at the Waterfront Hall. Ten years on from the Obama visit, so much has changed and yet so much has stayed the same. Today we have no sitting assembly at Stormont, uncertainty over Brexit and the Windsor framework, a need for investment and more political negotiations in the pipeline. The most obvious difference this time around is the absence of a threat of violence which hung over presidential visits of the past. Though at least Clinton, Bush and Obama didn't have to suffer the wrath of disgruntled Linfield and Glen Torn fans, a consolation which they should cherish. Thanks, as ever, for tuning in to this episode of the Historical Belfast podcast. This month marks the third anniversary of the podcast in which we've somehow clocked up 30,000 downloads. If you're enjoying the episodes, please consider supporting my work on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash historical Belfast. And as ever, remember to share the episodes with your friends and on social media. It really does make a difference.